So if you've been following us, uh, we've been doing a sermon series called Roots on the first 12 chapters of Genesis. The basic idea is that nowadays, even though we're living in 2017, if we come from a, we subscribe to uh, Jesus, who we're a Christian, we want to understand what, where are our roots? Where, where, where do we come from? Where's the root of sin? And all those kind of things. And so we're going back to the very beginning and understand how does this, the, the first 12 chapters of Genesis, how does that inform our worldview today? How does that affect us and how do we grapple with you know, our lives and sin and all kind of stuff? Um, so we're actually kind of in the middle of the first chapters. We're kind of in like the sub-series of the story of Noah. Uh, for the past two weeks, uh, Willie preached a sermon about the, the, the evil that was... Uh, uh, <coughs> <excuse> me. <coughs> oh, shoot, that's loud. Sorry, I'm like recovering from a, a cough, so I'm going to wake you up, guys, up from my cough now and then. Willie preached a sermon on evil and how God is a just God, right? And... and there are needs for um, the flood. And so Stephen preached a sermon last week about um, the, the happening of the flood, no one creating the, the, the boat, and all this kind of stuff about how God was gracious um, in the midst of it. And so now I get to preach the conclusion of it. We've seen that God is just. We've seen that God is gracious. And so now in this third and final act, what are we going to see from God? And so we're going to go into the text of Genesis 8, 18, 19, 17. But before we go there, I want to really quickly... Uh, teach, uh, do a quick teaching moment about the. the oh, Lawrence was the best. Thank you. <coughs> um, do do a quick small teaching about the Hebrew culture. Again, I do think it's very important for us to understand that the context and the culture that the the Bible was written to understand the Hebrew culture, the Greek culture, all that kind of stuff. Right. So one thing about the Greek culture and how they view time um, is very different from us in the American. Uh, ways that we relate to time. And we don't even know it. Well, for us as Americans, we view time linearly, right? It's a time line, right? Things are linear. What day is going to go? Sunday, then Monday, then Tuesday, then Wednesday, right? One year passes, 2017, 2018. And so the ways that we even think about our lives, right? You know, what's going to happen in the future? Maybe I'm going to graduate, I'm going to go here. Very, very linear and very progressive. We're always moving forward. That's the American culture. You could say probably the Western culture. Um, but the Hebrew culture is different. The Hebrew culture looks at time in a cyclical manner, in a cycle. Okay, I see the nod from Dan, so I know it's good. <laughs> so Hebrew culture looks at it as a, as a cycle. Now sometimes, you know, you know, time is moving, but things don't actually change. And that explains sometimes why when we read the Bible, things seem kind of redundant. And that's intentional, because the Hebrew culture is trying to press in a point that it's a cycle. Something's happening, but nothing is new under the sun, right? That's from our Ecclesiastes sermons. You know, there's a t uh, that's how they view time as a cycle. And that's very important because as we go into the sermons, uh, into the text, I actually want you guys to pay attention. Um, for some of us, you, we read the text from uh, Genesis 1 to here now. But I think, you'll, I think you'll notice that there is some cyclical things, that there's some redundancies or some things that are familiar to many previous passages that we've read. Um, so let's dive into the passage. Um, uh, the text will be up there. So I just want to note that Stephen actually preached up to verse 19 last week. I'm actually going to go back and start from verse 18, because that's going to be part of my... Um, yeah, you'll, you'll see later. But we're just going to be redundant with the first two verses. And you guys can read up here. You guys can read on your, on your text or your Bible. It doesn't matter. Um, whatever's best for you. So, starting from verse 18, ch chapter 8. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. 
Then Noah built an altar. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Chapter 9. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky and every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I have given you the green plants, now I give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it, still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with them, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures from, of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life, and whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it, and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. So in this first half of my sermon, I really want to focus again on this, the idea of Hebrew uh, cyclical kind of things. But the really good thing I want to get at is the parallels. The, the fact that there's a cycle shows that there's a parallel between Adam and Noah. I don't know if you guys noticed that, right? There's some language here that is very reminiscent, almost identical to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So why don't we look at it? So I put, I, I, uh, I put a list on the, on the, uh, what's called the slides. So on verse 18 and 19, why I want to include it, because it's an idea of the animals that are bursting forth from the boat, right? Kind of like creation, right? It talks about the language of the creatures and the livestock, they're out. Almost like a, a, the creatures are coming back out um, in, a, in, a, in, a, like a, in creation, right? Um, second one in verse 9-1, he, God, uh, God recommands Noah to be fruitful and to multiply. That's the same command that was given to Adam, right? From verses 2 to 3, this idea of dominion, right? Just as Adam had dominion and had a responsibility to name the animals, so does Noah have a, uh, the dominion over the animals again, too. There's a stipulation to not eat something, right? For Adam, it was the, not the fruit of the, uh, well, the tree of 
not a lot of good and evil. And for Noah, it's a stipulation to not eat something, though it's different, right, this time. It's, it's meat that has lifeblood in it. And again, there's this idea of the image of God that's repeated when it talks about um, the shedding blood of a human being. And so I think, again, what's the point of this? Well, I think the point is very, it's not that mind-blowing. It's just the fact that the author, what the story's trying to do right here is they're trying to remind the audience of creation. That's it. You know, that's just the cyclical thing. The point of being cyclical is to remind us of something. And that the, the conclusion of all, the conclusion of the Noah story is a, is a creation. It's almost a recreation, right? But there are differences, right? Just as there are, in cycles, maybe there's, some, there's a lot of similarities that we see right now, there are some key differences, and they're significant. And maybe we can understand something, what's going on here, what's different, and why is it important? And so the, we can go backwards. I've noticed uh, from verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, there's a responsibility now over human life. This is like this new rule, actually, um, where uh, people say this is the death penalty. So that if anyone sheds blood by, uh, what was it? Oh, sorry, I don't want to misquote it. Verse 9, 6, that whoever sheds human blood, by human shall the blood be shed. So that's a new rule. That was not there in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, right? There's another thing that it's not the fruit anymore, right? Now it's a, um, the meat that has lifeblood in it. Because there's an idea that the relationship between God and man is expanding, right? It's not just green plants anymore, but God is giving more dominion to man. Now, Noah, you can actually eat meat. There is a stipulation to not eat the lifeblood, but now you can have more. You have more responsibility. You have more dominion. Um, and yeah, I just said it too. There's now a, a difference that they can eat meat now. Um, so I think, again, I'm trying to show that it's, it's a cycle, but something's changing, something's different. But I think the key difference, the most important difference between Noah and Adam is in this next, um, next slide. And we're looking at verses um, 20 and 21 in chapter 8. Where am I in there? Let's get lost. Here we go. So in verses... Uh, chapter 8, 20 to 21. There's this interaction at the very beginning where Noah comes out of the ark. <coughs> cool. Got you guys awake. <laughs> so, again, imagine, put, your, put, your, put, your, put your feet in where Noah is, right? You've just witnessed something incredible. You, like, when you live in your life, you've seen people, like, sin. They do all these crazy stuff. And, like, people living in sin everywhere. And then God comes out of nowhere and says, Noah, I've chosen you. I want you to be my chosen one. I want you to build a big boat, and I'm going to destroy all of humanity. And that's, if that's not crazy enough, God actually does it, right? And Noah gets to witness this immense justice, this immense power before him. And at the very end of it, right, he, he's coming out of this boat. Um, what does he do? What, what, what would you do? Like, what would I do if I just saw this immense display of power? Well, right after, right, right after verse 19, 18, when, they, when Noah comes out, what does he do? The first thing he does right away is that he builds an altar to the Lord. And taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he offers a sacrifice. The very first thing he does is he immediately turns to God, and he worships him. I think this is, this, this is clearly showing that this is, the, this is the righteousness of Noah. When the story started, it started off that Noah is a righteous man. We don't really know what he did. Did he do good deeds? You know, did he give you charity? I don't know, right? But I think that this verse shows, clearly shows the righteousness of Noah. That his posture is that he wants to, uh, he's turned his posture towards looking to God, right? In the midst of everything, 
And I want to show that this is a very biblical idea. If you look at an entire Bible, when, when the Bible talks about righteous people, it's not about like, you know, oh man, they're like rich, or like they got good deeds, or like they have their life together. No, it's all about, are they turning to God? Are they looking to him? Are they having a humble and obedient posture to God? So actually, in a, in, a, in a crazy sense, you see people sin deeply, yet they're still called faithful and righteous because they're turning away and they're turning towards God. And then you have righteous, you have successful people who are nice and they give charity and all this kind of stuff, and yet they're not called righteous because they look at themselves. They don't look to God. They say, well, I'm so good. I give to charity and all that kind of stuff, right? So again, when we look at this, we see the righteousness of Noah is not about the, the, the good deeds and all that kind of stuff. It's the fact that he's turning to God, right? And I, I love this interaction because it's so personal. It's so wonderful. And right after, oh, sorry, let me go back. Uh, verse 21, it says that God is pleased. He has, a, there's a pleasing aroma. It's, and, and this, the Bible chooses to describe God in a very, you know, kind of a humanistic way where he smells it and it's a pleasing to him. And again, it's not, I'm not trying to, say that God's like a human or anything like that like in this moment, but it's, I, I think the language here is to show that there's a very personal and wonderful and intimate interaction between Noah and God. There's just something so good that Noah got it right here, and God is pleased to have found someone who's willing to be righteous and look to him. So what can we learn from this? This is just this first part of this um, Section, the really the tagline I want, I want to give to you guys is that God wants to, um, is postured towards recreation through righteousness. That's the posture of God. He's, he's longing to recreate, to make things new again. And he wants to do it through righteousness. And the righteousness that comes is from him, of course, right? Because God is perfect, God is wonderful, he's, he's loving, he's kind. But he also, I think the text proves that he wants to work with righteous people too, Right? He wants to work with people who are willing to turn towards him, like Noah, and maybe us. Posture of God is to move forward, to say, okay, things are messed up, but let's move forward. How can we recreate the situation? And then he wants to partner with us, if we would posture our hearts in a righteous way to look to him. I just want to clarify, I think the, the, my slide was up. When I say righteousness, I just want to clarify um, the righteousness that God has is, again, perfection, sinless, he's holy. He's, I mean, he's the guy who does all the good deeds, right? There is no way that he can do any bad deed. And so when I say the righteousness of man, I think we can kind of get like, oh, wait, but you know, all men are sinners, right? All this kind of stuff, and that's true. But I'd say that, when again, when the Bible describes righteous people, if we want to be righteous in any way, it's not, I'm not talking about the righteousness of perfection because we'll never get there, right? Uh, but it's the righteousness that we can be humble, we can be obedient, uh, we can be faithful, that's what I'm talking about. So the idea of righteousness, uh, sorry, uh, recreation through righteousness. And so let's, we can pause here. Um, and so I really want to ask the question, though, okay, we're doing recreation through righteousness, but what are we going towards? What's the whole point of restarting again? Right? We already saw that things didn't really go out well. You know, there's evil and all that kind of stuff. What are we going towards that we're going to start again? So... Um, I hit you with a controversial topic at the beginning, right? When we talk about LGBT. I'm going to hit you with another controversial topic. You get a two for one. Buy one, get one free. Um, I'm going to talk about abortion. So again, these are the two kind of big scandalous topics, controversial topics that happens in the church, right? You know, um, and, you know, I'm sure that all of us have a different view about abortion here and there and all this kind of stuff, right? So I'm not going to prove anything here right now, but 
I just want to hear me out. Like when I'm listening to these two different arguments, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what, what is the core like, principle, what is the core belief that each side has? So I, I would assume that most of us are connected to church, we know kind of the church, that for the church, it's a pro-life, right? We value life when at conception. That's the definition of life. It's not after birth or in the middle at a third trimester or anything like that, that life starts at conception. And so if we were to have an abortion, I think that, that would be murder, right? And so for the pro-life, anti-abortion side, right? I'm, let's say, I'm, I'm just going to put it right here. Um, they care about the life of the baby. They, they, and that is precious. We can't discount it, right? So let's think about the other side, okay? The ones who actually are supporting abortion. So, um, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, on the other side, when they're talking about oh, all this kind of stuff, I think at the very core of the thing, it's not about, they put the, they put the, the definition of life at like the third trimester or something like that, put it a little bit later, right? But we kind of get a little, little um, confused. Like, I think the, the argument in the conversation gets a little muddy when we talk about that. What is the core argument? What is the core belief of the pro-abortion? It's the fact that the life of the mother is valuable, right? Again, I'm not saying what, what's right and wrong right now. I'm just trying to think, okay, I'm putting myself, my, my, my feet in their shoes. And that the pro-abortion thing, we want to help the mother. And their argument is that if we can abort the baby, the mom can, you know, maybe they're in a bad economic situation, you know, or like the, the boyfriend or husband has run away. We want to support the life of the mother, that the life of the mother is precious, right? And... Again, I, I'm not here to say one right is wrong, other kind of stuff, but it's very interesting for me that both sides count life as precious, right? And they're willing to, ch they're used different, I mean, well, the, the Christians are not going to change the definition of life, right? But be, because they're focusing on different lives and all that kind of stuff, they're willing to argue in a certain way, right? I think, I'm, I'm going I'm to end with a story later about abortion, but I think as a church, we need to consider, yeah, life is very precious, both the life of the baby and the mother. Because I do subscribe to the biblical definition of life beginning at conception. That they're both precious. That life is precious. Why did I talk about this? I'm going to get to that later. A totally sweet story if I have time. But when I'm going back to the original question of why do this? Why recreate? What's the whole point of this? You know, if God is willing to destroy all of humanity with a big old flood, does God care about life? Does God, if he's going to destroy all this, does God care about life? And the answer is a resounding yes. And I'm going to prove it in these next few slides with a text and show that God takes life as precious. God loves life. And God is willing to, to, to work towards it, to work with humans and go with commands and all this kind of stuff. And I'm going to prove to you that, that the recreation through righteousness is going towards life. The first thing I'm going to prove it is with the commandments of God. If we look at... Um, the chapter uh, verses nine, uh, sorry, chapter nine, verses one through seventeen. Um, I'm just going to say that this kind of this 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 section of the Bible, uh, sorry, section of the chapter, well, yeah, the Bible, um, it's God's instructions to man of how to maintain life and enjoy it to its fullest capacity. That's like the big idea there. In the midst of it, it's about you know increasing and build, um, increasing in number, you know, multiplying. But also it's the idea of having proper dominion. Take care of life. Take care of the animals. Take care of the animals and go eat, live your lives, right? In the midst of it too, we also see this new commission that uh, about the lifeblood, right? We haven't seen that before, right? And that's maybe a little bit makes us uncomfortable about the. You know, it seems like there's a kind of issue of like the death penalty, all that kind of stuff. But 
I want to just want to say that in this section, God is saying that life is important. So man, Noah, you must, um, these commandments are for you to maintain and enjoy life if you follow these commandments. This idea that lifeblood here is very significant, right? Um, I don't know if you don't have the slides up there. Uh, yeah, I think uh, the next slide we have a uh, chapter. Oh, actually, we go two slides to chapter. F- uh, sorry, verse four. So this this is the thing about not eating meat with the lifeblood in it. Okay, what's going on there? Why why we can eat meat but just not with the lifeblood in it? There's an idea that the lifeblood here is very important, so important that we're not supposed to consume it, not supposed to eat it. It's very precious um, that even the blood of animals must not be eaten. Um, and we kind of know this. As Christians, we know this. Right? We're always talking about the blood of Jesus. Right? There's, an as- there's an idea that the blood of Jesus covers us, all this kind of stuff. There's an idea that the blood of Jesus is very tied to his life and his death. Right? We also saw this in, in um, Genesis 4. Wait, Genesis 4, right? Uh, when Cain and Abel, they're fighting. Remember when Abel is killed and God confronts Cain? What is he saying? The blood of your brother cries out from the ground. There's an idea that the blood that's been spilled by Abel is it's just so horrifying. That's just, it's crying out. And God hears it. God sees the blood that is spilled. So blood is so important here, right? Because I think it's tied to... Um, there's a significant way it's tied to the life of a person. And in the midst of this too, that it's so important that we are accountable for it. That even animals are accountable for spilling the lifeblood of a human being. And so in here, um, in verses uh, uh, 5 and 6, then we get the, the commandment of whoever sheds human blood, by humans their blood will be shed. So again, this is often used to talk about the death penalty, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, I kind of, kind of sidestep the death penalty kind of conversation. I think we can have that. Um, it's not that it's not important, but I'll be honest, I'm not exactly sure how to tackle it. Because I think when we look at, when we look at this passage, I think the, grit, the bigger idea is not about death. It's about life and how life is important and that there's, there's an idea of equivalence and fairness. That if you're willing to take the life of someone, that your life must be taken too, right? It's about life preserving it and disincentivizing people from taking life. And, I, and again, I, 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 may I, I don't know, you guys can disagree with me, but I think that often we, when we employ the death penalty, we look at the, the modern American system, we see that there's a lot of issues with it, right? There's wrongful convictions, um, there's people, um, whether the capital punishment system exists, works or not. I'm not going to get into the politics, I'm not going to get into the legalities, all that kind of stuff. I love, you know, we can have, have a conversation about that kind of things, but I think the big point that I really want to, that I'm kind of pulling out of the text here, is that life is important. And that it's so important that God makes this command that you must not take a life, because then your life will be taken too. Um, so, again, I'm not saying that we can't apply it. I think it's just very complex. Again, dealing with judicial systems, all that kind of stuff um, in modern day. And, and culture too, whatever, whatever country we're from and all those kind of things, right? The next part to prove that God cares about life is the covenant. Um, so, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, do a little bit of theology right here. What is a covenant? I don't know if you guys have been in church for a long time or a short time, all that kind of stuff. This word covenant, what the heck does that mean? It's not a very colloquial word that we hear a lot along the time. What is, what is a covenant? What does it mean? You might have heard it before, but not quite sure. I just wanted to define a covenant for you right now. 
the best way I would describe it is it's the mix of an, of an agreement, like a promised agreement and a contract. It's not like a business contract, it's not as like dry, I feel like as a, as a business contract, but it's also got this idea of a promise, that we're gonna agree between two parties of, of, of a promise of something that we're gonna do for each other. Back then in the ancient times, often big, strong nations would sign covenants with smaller nations. Because the big, the big nations got the military and the power so they can protect the small nation. But the small nation doesn't have like the army, right? But what they could offer is resources. Maybe they could offer their labor and their work. And so it's a mutual kind of contract where the bigger nation protects the small, smaller gives resources to the big, right? Or something like that, right? So, so that's the covenant that you could kind of see understand in the ancient times. We have covenants in our modern times, too. The most famous one is the marriage covenant, right? Two people, two parties come together and they make a promise. And there's something very serious about it, right? It's not just like a, oh, like a boyfriend, girlfriend, like getting together and dating, something like that. It's, there's something of a next level, a very powerful contractual kind of thing where you know, uh, uh, you know, a pastor or a priest looks over it. There's, like a, there's legal issues, all that kind of stuff where people are officially married and the, the state, the government approves of it, right? So that's the kind of idea of a covenant. And the covenant is actually very used quite often. It's actually very important when it comes to us understanding the Bible and when it comes to the relationship between man and God. The best way I would put it is that the covenant is a DTR between God and man. DTRs define the relationship, right? So it's like, you know, <laughs> sorry, I thought people wouldn't know. But basically, DTR is that. You know, maybe you're seeing a girl, or I mean, or you're seeing a guy, you know, like you're, you're hanging out one-on-one -on -one for a long time, but you know, oh, do you like each other, you know? Are we girlfriend, are we boyfriend, not quite sure. So the DTR conversation is you define the relationship. You know, you know, what are your feelings for me? Are we girlfriend, are we boyfriend, are we not? You know, all kind of stuff. So in the same way, I think, I mean, in, in this kind of the same way that God is saying, this is gonna be our relationship. This is gonna be our DTR. I'm gonna, I'm gonna describe it through this covenant. <laughs> And so, um, in this passage, we see the second covenant that God has made. In the Bible, you can see there's six covenants. And the covenants, are, I think, are very important for understanding how the story of God progresses and how the relationship that God has with man actually changes and progresses. And so here, we have a new covenant when it comes to Noah. Um, the covenant is in verses 8. 8 to 13, but we're not going to really look at the text. Um, we can look at it later, but there's just a few things I really want to note about the covenant. First of all, that God takes life so seriously that he's going to seal it in a covenant. It's just not going to be a thing that he says, but I say, I'm going to make this contract. I'm going to make it in a covenant. I'm going to seal my commitment to life, and I'm going to proclaim it to you, Noah. There's very unique things about the covenant, too. First of all, God expands the covenant, not just to man, but to all living things, Right? If you notice the language, see, it's very redundant. God keeps saying all living things, all things to the earth, to the thing, over and over again. God's expanding the covenant that's just not just to Noah or to Adam, but to the whole earth and to all animals and nature. Second thing is that God's focused with peace with the earth. So it's not just with light. There's a certain point in the, in the, in the, in the text where God says, I'm going to make my covenant between me and the earth. Never again will I destroy it. And this is kind of reminiscent of how in Revelation, God creates, renews the earth, right, in a new earth, right? But there's a covenant, there's actually a promise that there's a relationship that God has with the earth itself. And the third thing is that God declares this covenant unconditionally. So man can fail. Man has actually no, um, 
Nothing in this. It's just God saying, I'm going to do this. No matter what you do, whether you succeed, whether you fail, I'm going to make this unconditional covenant that I will never destroy life again. That's my commitment to you guys. That I'm actually posturing myself towards life and recreation instead of destruction. Because we know Noah's going to sin. We know that, I mean, we're not even done with the service here. We're going to see a lot of sin. Even despite that, God is going to stay true to his promise here, his covenant to Noah, to all living creatures, to, to mankind, and to the earth. We're almost done. Third thing I want to really prove that God cares about life is with the rainbow. I'm not going to say much. Um, I think there's a very straightforward point that God is trying to create a very physical and uh, seeable emblem, right? A reminder, right? That's what the text is saying, that when the clouds part and the rainbow comes out, you will be reminded, I will be reminded of the peace that we have now, of the, of the fact that I promise never to destroy ever again. And I think it's really nice. Maybe it's nothing more than just, you know, I don't, I'm not going to extract some deep, you know, whoa, profound meaning, but maybe it's just a nice, some of the fact that God cares about us remembering through things. God cares about us remembering through symbols. But I do like one thing. Um, I read from a commentary as I was doing the study for this passage. Um, the same Hebrew word that's used for bow and rainbow is the same Hebrew word that's used for the battle bow. Okay? And so there's this idea that when the rainbow comes up, God is taking his battle bow and he's hanging it up. I'm not going to destroy it anymore. I'm going to put it up. I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, and I think there's something also very wonderful, the fact that after the darkest stormy clouds, there's a, there's a rainbow that comes out. I want to just read you this quick quote from Marcus Dodds. Um, it talks about the rainbow. If anyone is under a cloud, leading a joyless and heartless life, if anyone is in much apparent reason to suppose that God has given him up to catastrophe, and I know we've all gone through catastrophe, we've gone, all gone through heartache, maybe even right now, right? We're all fighting our battles, right? There's an apparent reason to suppose that God has given him up to catastrophe. There is satisfaction in reading this natural emblem and recognizing without the cloud, there cannot be the bow. And that no cloud of God's sending is permanent, but one day will give place to unclouded joy. So, throughout the sermon, I hope I've proven to you the point that God is committed to recreation through righteousness towards life. God is not going to do a full reset and just wipe it all away. Now, whether there's baggage, whether there's history, we're going to deal with it. We're going to try to recreate and start something new. We're, God wants to do it with, with righteous people, too, with partners. That means us. So we have a responsibility to look towards God, to be partners with God in recreating this earth and renewing it, whether it means our lives, the friends around us, whether it's the earth and the nature around us. There's a recreation through righteousness. And the whole point is that it's for life, that God cares about life. He's moving away from destruction and wants us to be renewed and to enjoy and maintain the life that he's given to us, right? So how are we, if, if, if God, the question is, well, God is so committed, are we committed? Right? Are we going to be a church that's committed towards recreation? Are we going to be a church that's going to be righteous and look towards God to have him lead us instead of us lead him? Or are we going to be a church that's committed to life and looking at life as precious? No matter what background you have, or culture, skin color, you know, age, or anything like that, every life is precious. Are we going to be a church that's committed to that? I just want to conclude with some application steps. 
Um, maybe you've been thinking about stuff. I, 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 as people are certain, you know, I have no doubt that the Spirit is working within you right now. But maybe some things that were said here have reminded you of things, maybe of the past, or maybe things that you want, new things that we're going to do. I would say write it down. Jot it down on your cell phone, on the, on the thing, you know, Allow, don't leave, again, don't leave here without some kind of change, some kind of conviction maybe, or some kind of encouragement. And put it down somewhere on paper to remind yourself, right? Get that, get that reminder. But if anything, if you guys maybe not quite sure, I'm going to give you guys a few application steps, maybe to help you process, what can we do now? What are we going to do about this sermon and this idea of recreation through righteousness towards life? Um, the first idea is to seek righteousness with God. And that's the first one, it's the most important one, it's the most foundational one. Because we can go out there with our best plans. Oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But as the text said, the inclinations of our heart are sinful. You know, it's not going to be long where we start to get prideful. Things start to get frustrated. We start to get angry. We might start to hurt other people. We might start to hurt ourselves. I think none of us should be so prideful to think that we are perfect and that we can do it by ourselves and that we can't even do it, right? Um, we need the righteousness of God. We need God to lead us, because he knows us, he knows all, he knows our lives, he knows our weaknesses, and he can lead us to a place where we can be fruitful. We can, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> oh, there it is. Um, anyway, yeah, so the idea that we need to come to God first and understand where is he going to lead us? Not us lead God, but how is God going to lead us? So I want to say, too, um, if you're a Christian, I would say this again, this this, this message is still for you, that wherever you are, allow God to be first in your life. Allow that to be renewed, saying, okay, where am I right now? And is God leading me first? I'll say if you're not a Christian, maybe this is your first time at church, maybe you've been to church, but you don't really want to be a Christian, all this kind of stuff. I want to just want to say that God wants to be part of your life, you know. God's not gonna not God's not gonna wait for you. You know, you don't have to come up with those 500 deeds of righteousness. You don't have to come up with that money that you need to give right now. God is willing for you to partner with you, to be a part of your life and to bless it and to recreate it anew. Every part of your life. I'm sure every Christian here can talk about how God has recreated their lives anew again. And God wants to do that for you. And the only thing is to take the posture of Noah and just to look at it and say, God, it's, it's you. It's all you. The second, um, the second application I have is to meditate and to memorize the promises of Scripture. I, I, got, uh, I got really lucky. I, I love talking about covenants, and I think it's an amazing thing. Um, but the covenant really is, is a gift to us. It's a promise that God has proclaimed to us. But there's a lot of promises here. And I want to say that it's important for us to meditate and to memorize the promises of God, especially when we're going through, you know, the difficulties of life. You know, I'll be honest. Just this today, this morning... <coughs> I don't know about you. I mean, we've all experienced this, right? You know, we're on the subway, the subway car's open, and boom, people flying in, people going out, all this kind of stuff, people cutting each other. And so I got cut off by this guy, and I got so mad. Like, how could you cut? You know, I just got so frustrated, right? And so, oh my gosh. And then, uh, maybe it's the Holy Spirit, maybe I don't know. But I just remember the words that God said to Cain. You know, maybe it's because we've been doing the series on, was, uh, on, uh, say, on Genesis, but the ideas of, uh, kind of told to me, Kevin, Sin is crouching at your door. I was like, oh, shoot, you're right. Sin is crouching at my door. And I'm so angry at this guy right now. Um, and, 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 and so I had to remember that. I had to remember the promise in the scriptures. Say, okay, you know what? I forgive that guy. You know, because I've done it too, right? I've cut off people. I've probably cut off people today, you know? And so I got to forgive that guy and move on, right? So I want to say, do you have your arsenal of memorized verses or things that you can meditate on, you know? Um, 
Uh, like, yeah, like, uh, I, I love Revelations the, when, when God says, I make all things new. That comforts me so much to remember that God makes all things new. That when I make a mistake, you know, I'm going to probably come after the sermon and think, oh, I made a mistake there. You know, why did I go on for so long? Why am I sweating so much? But I can remember, oh, wait, God makes all things new. And that's okay. <laughs> it's all, in the end, God wins, right? So again, like, what, what are some scriptures that you can meditate and memorize for your daily life when things get hard? Third thing is to pray and partner with God in recreation. So this is more of the missional side. Um, again, I want the first two to be a comfort and encouragement for you, to, for you guys to be bolstered. But I want to also challenge us to think, okay, you, as, as Christians, really, that we're lives are not for ourselves, that we are agents of reconciliation. We're agents of recreation. Um, I was reading an article probably a couple weeks ago about um, the topic of abortion. And there's, a, there's an article um, entitled The Problem with Linking Abortion and Economics by Lori Sazala. Uh, uh, Sorry. Um, but I just want to read an excerpt for you guys because I think it's so, I think, it, it, I love the, the attitude that she takes because she definitely shows that life is precious, both the life of the mother and the baby. Um, so if you just bear with me, I'm just going to read a little bit. Um, um, unplanned pregnancy presents challenges, but it doesn't have to lead to economic failure. She's kind of, she's, she's kind of going against the pro-abortion um, argument that, oh, we have to get an abortion because it will just fix the economic problem, right? But it does. Abortion is society's easy way out. It's, it's a way of avoiding grappling with the fundamental injustices driving women to abortion clinics. And there's much more than just the, right? There's mu much more fundamental issues of poverty and all that kind of stuff. And she, then she says, I know it, because that's my story. And, and the story of countless mothers I've helped confront similar challenges. She goes on to talk about how she became pregnant, and a very, uh, really, just, and a, being economically poor. She's daughter of a single parent, barely surviving, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And at a certain point, she had an unintended pregnancy. And I asked a close friend, I'm going to just kind of read it up. She says, I asked a close friend to drive me to the appointment. This woman had been in the same situation just months before and without much contemplation aborted her child. Weeping, she explained how she was depressed and considered suicide. She begged me to cancel the appointment, and I did. And she goes on to explain how she, she, moved, she moves to the returning war, she, she gets parenting classes, all that kind of stuff, and she, she works so hard all those kind of things, in order to get the tutoring she needs, the education she needs, and, the, and her family and her networks all come over and support her. And she's able to, to, to survive, and not just survive, to thrive, right? This article I actually was linked to from a Christianity Today article. And the Christianity Today article, I mean Christian source, right? They're looking at the story. And it seems like the woman's a Christian, right? Because she defines the, the fetus as a baby. Um, she doesn't really say it. But the Christian article says, wow, like, like this story is so amazing. For the fact that um, people came around this woman in a dark and hard time. But I'm just going to kind of say, they, they re recreated the narrative, Right? It didn't have to become an abortion. It didn't have to become depression, whether it was going to be or not. They recreated the narrative so that she could live a thriving life. And the Christianity article challenged the church and the authors, like, why don't we do this as a church? Why don't we also surround and be a strong network for all the women who are out there who are struggling to go into the abortion clinic or not, suffering with poverty and depression, all this kind of stuff. Can the church also be a place to recreate the narrative? So that's a pretty big issue, but I love that, right? Because, again, it takes life as precious, both the baby and the mother. Um, 
<laughs> Sorry, Xavier. <laughs> anyway, that's like a big thing. Maybe you guys can daydream about that. But I think also pray and consider what are areas of your own life that you can recreate. Maybe your work life. Maybe you're with coworkers. Um, maybe you know working to to have a conversation with people who are struggling in your life, with friends, who are non Christians, all that kind of stuff. So again, just think about how can we recreate a situation that seems dire. Right? Maybe it's just you know helping a coworker, working a little bit extra so that you can take a break, or I don't know. You know, we can daydream and think about it and talk about it in, in our missional families, but that's one way, right? Okay, last thing. Last thing. I'm going really long. Last thing is to value life and nature. Um, this is a very unique covenant. All the covenants, all the promises that God is often make is often with people, with Abraham, with David, all this kind of stuff. But this is the only covenant that talks about nature, about with all life. And you guys are so unlucky because the preacher standing before you does not like nature. I'm just gonna be honest with you guys. I'm not. I don't really relate to God through nature, all that kind of stuff. But I can't. I can't let that go. Nature is still important. So even for me, even though I don't really value nature as much as other people, I have to understand that, wow, you know, the plants out there, the animals out there, they're still important. That actually it's a sin for us to ignore the environment. So any one of us who are, you know, uh, environmentalists, all that kind of stuff, turn to this passage. This is biblical evidence that supports, you know, supporting the earth, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, going green, all that kind of things. So maybe for one application is to value life. Maybe to recycle or go green energy. Again, I don't know, I recycle. But uh, to maybe consider that and to value life, maybe even to enjoy nature too. Maybe it's time maybe for some of us during the summer to take a vacation. Go out into the suburbs, you know, enjoy the trees or I guess go to the park. You won't find me there, but maybe you guys. <laughs> but those are my applications for you guys. And um, again, I hope this is an encouragement challenge to you that wherever we are, um, we have an opportunity to recreate. No matter what background, no matter where you are in your life stage right now, we can do it through a righteousness, through a posture of leaning towards God, and the result is going to be life. It's going to be good, everlasting, joyful life. Let's pray.